Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. Uh, my name is Tom Wedder. I'm the assistant pastor here at Kennett Valley, and it's great that we can um, gather around God's Word this morning together. We're going to be looking at Romans chapter 9, uh, verses 14 to 29. So if you've got access to a phone or a Bible, uh, do turn with me there so we can look at it together. That's Romans chapter 9, starting at verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, well, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sands by the sea, only the remnant will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would focus our hearts upon you. We thank you for Sundays. We thank you for these services and the chance to come to your word. And Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts now to hear you speak. Amen. Imagine for me that it's Saturday, 3 p.m., and as a Reading supporter, you are heading into the VIP box at the Medeski Stadium, ready to watch the game. And as you enter the box, you're met with a room full of navy shirts. The whole place is rammed with Millwall supporters. What goes through your mind, apart from, you know, quickly wanting to cover up your Reading shirt? Well, I think your first thought is going to be, that they're not meant to be here. This isn't for them. Who has let them in? Well, your second thought then might be, well, maybe this can't be the right place. You know, if it was, it would be packed with your guy, surely. Well, this is not too dissimilar to to Paul's reaction um, and what he's anticipating from his Jewish hearers. They're looking at the the young church that should be filled with their people, and yet hardly any are there. Instead, it's filled with outsiders. 
Well, the options are either that God's word has failed because he said that, that they were his people, or they have misunderstood what God has said about his mercy. And Paul, in the first half of this chapter that we looked at last week, he says, well, actually, it's not that God's word has failed. It is God's sovereign choice who he shows mercy to. And so the second half of the chapter that we're looking at today, Paul is anticipating some of their objections. And so what he's going to do is he's going to take them back to the Old Testament scriptures to clear up some of their misunderstandings. But it's going to be important for us as well to listen into this Because you and I, we can easily react in the same way when confronted with God's sovereignty and his sovereign choice about who he shows mercy to. This is one of those chapters in the Bible that really provokes that in us. And often in the 21st century, our reaction is to put God in the docks. C.S. Lewis once put it this way. He said, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And this attitude of entitlement is fed into us day after day. And so when we turn our thoughts to God, we are in completely the wrong roles. And so as we begin, it's going to be really helpful for all of us to ask, where am I in that kind of uh, courtroom scene? How do you react to God's sovereignty? It might be that you are, you're closed in rejection of God. Are you maybe refusing to move from the, from the judge's seat? God has to answer uh, for his actions. Or maybe uh, you are number two there on the PowerPoint. You're open, you're questioning You know, you've you've cautiously come down from the judgment seat, but you're hovering in the spectator's seat. You've, You've still got your questions. And that's okay. Maybe you are, uh, number three, you are marveling at God, the right and true judge. Your heart says that that he is good, and and while you may not have all the answers, you are going to trust him. Where are you in the courtroom? My hope is that as we look at this challenging passage, that you and I will move along in this, maybe from, uh, from number one to number two or number two to number three, as we move towards marveling at the mystery of God's mercy. We won't understand him completely, but we will avoid misunderstanding him if we move uh, to this place of marveling. It might be that you're already at number three. Well, in which case this morning, rejoice again that though completely undeserving, He has shown you mercy. How are we going to do that? Well, um, we're going to consider three mysteries of God's mercy that Paul draws out. And while on some level they will remain a mystery, they will help us to marvel at God if you and I, we come with, with humble hearts. So let's do that together. Paul, in in the first half of the chapter, has just stated that it is God's sovereign choice who is going to be included in the people of God. And he knows that there are going to be those who are not okay with that. Look at verse 14. Paul asks, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? And in response, we see that God's mercy is always undeserved. God's mercy is undeserved. Verses 14 to 18. 
Now, Paul can't help himself. His immediate response to this question is, not at all. God's justice isn't even in question. Instead, what he does is he takes two individuals back at a key time in Israel's history to show uh, how this can be the case that it's not against God's justice. And the first he, he goes to is Moses. And his point is that we can't make accusations that God is unjust because his mercy is entirely free. In verse 15, he recalls the episode where Moses has come down from the mountain with those stone tablets to find that the people have turned from God and are now worshipping a golden calf that they themselves have created. And Moses, he returns up the mountain to plead with God on their behalf. And God, in this epic scene, he passes by Moses and declares this, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You see, if these people are going to continue in relationship to God after they've completely rejected him, well, it's only going to be because of God's mercy. Look at verse 16. It says, it doesn't depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Which we have to say is amazing news, because I I know that left to my own devices, my heart gravitates towards other gods of my own creation, just like the Israelites. But if God's mercy is free, then he is not limited by my poor efforts. He has the freedom to pour out his compassion and his mercy and love on anyone. If you and I, if we call into question God's justice because maybe we don't like how God is, is giving out his mercy, well, actually, you and I have no hope. Who of us could stand when faced with God's absolute justice? And if God's mercy isn't dependent on our efforts, you and I can actually enjoy spiritual peace. Imagine the Israelites, you know, knowing that they had utterly failed God and yet he uh, has, has gone with them. He said that it's entirely dependent upon his mercy. Well, then they go with peace, freely enjoying this mercy that he has given to them. God gives his mercy freely. But Paul now shows us that um, how God was also sovereign over the life of Pharaoh. And we know from the story of Pharaoh that God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh continues wanting his way rather than God's way. Read verse 18. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Well, what does that mean, that God hardened his heart? I think the first thing we must say is that uh, we've got to be clear that the Bible doesn't use them as equal and opposite actions, mercy and hardening. And one commentator, um, a guy called Douglas Moo, he says this, God's bestowing of mercy and his hardening are not equivalent acts. God's mercy is given to those who do not deserve it. And his hardening affects those who have already, by their sin, deserved condemnation. Now, we in our modern era might ask God, well, why not have mercy on everybody? But we've already been shown that that nobody is deserving of God's mercy. And why must God be obligated to judge the way that we would judge? Might we actually now be putting ourselves back in the judgment seat because we see something of our own um, stubbornness uh, that we see in Pharaoh? And therefore we want God to have mercy on us. Well, God is able to harden Pharaoh because he was fully deserving of judgment. 
He was part of this regime that had enslaved and murdered generations of Israelites. And God would be just to condemn him at at any point. But instead, we do learn that God delays Pharaoh's judgment by hardening him in order that God's mercy would then go to others. You can read that in verse 17. I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God delays his justice so that through this story of Pharaoh, more undeserving people would know God's name all over the world and come to enjoy his free mercy. In his sovereignty, he is able to use the hardness of some to bring mercy to others. And whoever receives it, God's mercy is entirely free and undeserved. Which means that none of us, none of us are beyond God's help this morning. God's mercy is undeserved. God's mercy is undeserved. But Paul now anticipates our next question. Why then does God blame us? Who can resist his will? And so we jump straight back into the judgment seat and ask, well, how can God judge us over something that he controls? Well, here is our second mystery. God's mercy is his to give. Verses 19 to 23, God's mercy is his to give. Now, Paul has an, uh, doesn't answer the question directly, but we've got to understand that that's because Paul has not set out to create this balanced argument about the huge philosophical question of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. That's not what he's trying to do here. He's not talking about individual salvation. He is addressing why the church is now filled with non-Jews. Can God blame Israel for not being in if he's the one that has ultimate control of their lives? And I think that on one level, that's a really understandable question. I'm sure all of us, in in one way or another, at one time or another, have had a similar question. But the way Paul responds isn't to discourage us from asking questions, and it's important for us to see that. His answer is meant to make us check our posture towards God as we ask our questions. And then recognize that it is God who gives mercy, and it's his right to whom he gives mercy to. So he says, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? The response is meant to conjure up in our minds the image of Job back in the Old Testament. Job had so many questions about what was going on in his life and why things were happening. And yet God commends him uh, for being honest before the Lord in Job 42, 7. And God, responding to Job, he does what he did for Moses when Moses wanted to understand more. And so just as with Moses, God doesn't give him the specific answers to why he's doing what he's doing. But God reveals his bigness to handle it all. And so then Job, rather than feeling oppressed and unheard, he realizes that that his life is in the hands of the one who conducts the symphony of the cosmos and of our lives with wisdom that that is far beyond our grasp. And that when our lives and our rights are in his hands... We are safe. He is not going to ignore them and he is not going to violate them. And so Job says in verse uh, 5 and 6 of of Job chapter 42, My ears had heard of you, now my eyes have seen you, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. God welcomes our questions. It's important for for all of us to know that. God loves to, to hear us pour out ourselves openly to him. 
But as we ask our questions, it is right that we check our posture towards him, like, like Job repenting, not creeping back into the judgment seat, but remembering that he is so completely and utterly beyond us. And so Paul now continues with the, the potter analogy that uh, God once used with Isaiah. You can see this in verse 21. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? So Paul is he's building uh, on his point from Job. And he says that God is creator of all things. And we are his creatures. We don't sit in judgment over God's wisdom. And actually, there is wonderful hope for us, for all of us who are under God's mercy. We are clay in the hands of love himself. The one who not only knows what is good, but is goodness himself. We sit in his hands. And so for all of us who struggle with, uh, to control our, our minds and our hearts, all of us who, who resonate with the idea of being this, this lump of clay, you know, uh, no motivation or power within ourselves to live a holy life, we can know that God, when we are in his hands, he can mold us and he can shape us into something beautiful. And that is wonderful. That is such hope for us this morning, for me and for you. But Paul is, address, Paul is addressing a group who have not received God's mercy and remain hard towards Jesus. And Paul points to that, um, that actually that is God's right too. Look at verses, uh, verse 22. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and power and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the object of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? So there's two different vessels here. And he is saying to them, well, what if God is using your hardness and is being patient with you in order that mercy might reach others? Do you see how uh, there's kind of a similarity here, isn't there, between the description of Pharaoh that he used earlier and now the way that he's talking to the Jews? No wonder Paul expects some kind of fierce kickback from them. Um, Paul has taken a central story um, from the, that is kind of central to the Jewish identity and likened them to the arrogant and stubborn baddie. So, yeah, pretty reasonable that he's going to get some pretty fierce kickback. But let's not hear this wrongly. God is not making them bad. Notice he uses this word prepared, but actually in the original, this prepared is, is two different uh, tenses. Uh, here used for vessels of wrath and used for vessels of mercy. It's different, kind of in the same way that um, mercy and hardening were not equivalent acts. And so when he says the vessels of wrath that were prepared um, for destruction, the prepared there is passive. They have prepared themselves by their sin for destruction. And the vessels of mercy, well, that, that prepared word is active. God has prepared them by giving mercy to them to be different. Now, this, uh, let's be honest, this is a mystery which Paul is not trying to explain. But what we see Paul do is we see him recognize and accept that God can use the lives of evil people to achieve good and still come away with clean hands. That is not something that I fully understand, let me be honest. But you know what? I am, I'm glad that evil is not outside of God's control. We wouldn't want it that way, would we? 
And I'm glad that because of this mystery, God can use the hardness of the Jews to bring mercy to many, many more. It's a hard, it, it is a hard mystery, and it is okay for us to understand that there is loads that we don't understand about this. But what we can do is we can marvel that God is fulfilling his purposes still. Which is what we see in these final verses, verses 24 to 29. God's mercy is reaching undeserving people. God's mercy is reaching undeserving people. Look at verse 24. He says, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. God's purpose is that through those whom he has hardened, mercy will reach others. And so Paul is now about to share who that's going to be. Who are these people that are going to receive mercy? So the first is those who are outsiders, those who feel completely written off. Living uh, myself in the UK and being from the UK, I'm fortunate that it's pretty rare that I actually ever feel like an outsider. Though I can remember one occasion in South Africa um, where some friends had invited us over to uh, a barbecue or a braai um, one evening. And uh, we did what we would normally do when heading to a barbecue. We would stop at the shops and we would buy some sausages and some burgers to take with us. But when we turned up, we quickly realized that that is not how it's done. Uh, Others had brought Boravore sausages that were basically the size of my face. um, And others, T-bone steaks that were just massive like spades. And they very soon laughed at our sausages and our, our little burger patties. That's a very silly example, but none of us want to feel like outsiders, do we, ever? And through Paul, God is revealing that his purpose has always been to bring in outsiders, to bring in outsiders. And he demonstrates that through this quote from Hosea, which you'll see in the passage. Now, you may or may not be familiar with the story of Hosea. Um, You can see here where where Hosea the prophet is on the big uh, Bible timeline, speaking to the northern kingdom. And Hosea was a prophet who uh, was told to marry a prostitute as a pretty stark image about how Israel were behaving at the time. And so he does, and he has children with this prostitute called Gomer, and God tells them to name their children, not my people, and not loved, which is not very high up on our list of baby names at the moment, I've got to be honest. Not my people, and not loved. But this is what's really interesting. Um, Paul is using this quote in two ways. The first is for Israel, most of whom were completely wiped off the map because where they didn't repent when, when God's word came to them through Hosea. They didn't repent, and so they faced judgment and were just wiped off. But here, God is promising that one day there would be those who from this people would be brought back into the arms of God. And then also, quite unexpectedly, Paul adds to that and says, it is also speaking about when God himself will call to himself individuals from outside God's nation through the gospel of Jesus. God will draw in those who were never called his people, those who were never Israel. Those who never had that banner that said, you are my people, never had that. This verse is also speaking of them. And so for us, this time has come with the arrival of Jesus as he ushers in his kingdom through his saving work on the cross. Now, outsiders have poured into the church to hear God say, you are in my family. 
You are my beloved. I love you. And let's be clear, it's not because any of us have suddenly got our act together. No, it is because God is merciful. And so no matter how far you feel outside of God's reach this morning, how much you feel an outsider in the church, God is able to call even those who were never on the spiritual map his people. God is bringing in the outsider. Paul now turns his attention, uh, whole attention, to the Jewish listeners. And I think, as it says in the, in the same way in verse 27, that Isaiah cries out in this quote that we're about to read. I think Paul is doing exactly the same when he uses it. We read that Isaiah cries out, Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. Many Jews hearing this believed that they were in because they were descendants of Abraham. But Paul says this verse, whilst you know, there will be many descendants, only few will be saved. And that's what they were observing with, with many Jews not embracing the mercy of Jesus that the Old Testament had been pointing towards. And so Paul cries out to them. Whilst God's patience continues with those who reject him, the opportunity remains for them to cry out for mercy. Now, you might say, well, how does that work if God has decided who this remnant will be? Now, that is a mystery of scripture as we hold this tension of God's choice and of our responsibility. But notice that Paul doesn't say, well, well, it's God's choice. I don't need to do anything. He takes the opportunity to call these descendants of Abraham to reach out for God's mercy in Christ Jesus before judgment comes. God is saving the remnant. And so we, as as the outsiders and the remnant, we are all undeserving recipients of God's mercy. And I'm sure that there are many who who don't believe, who come into the church expecting lots of good people, wanting lots of, you know, nice and pleasant and moral people, and are shocked and say, hey, this place is filled with hypocrites and moral failures. How have they been let in? Isn't the church, you know, isn't this meant to be the church of God? How come they are in? Well, this is the marvel of God's mercy. Verse 29, unless the Lord Almighty has left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. The fact is that it is only by God's mercy and compassion that our hearts are kept back from falling into and becoming like those in Sodom and Gomorrah who were completely wiped out. We have nothing to bring to God, nothing to offer him. All I have to give to God is a hypocrite's heart. And yet, Paul is not writing this chapter to lay out a philosophical thesis about evil, sovereignty, and choice. Paul is writing and holding out this amazing and marvelous mystery of God's mercy, which is given only to the undeserving. And it is him alone who has the right to give it. And it is reaching undeserving people like you and me. And so to all who are are willing to trust him this morning, the offer is there for mercy. So let me invite you to come to him with empty hands and a humble heart 
and hear him say, you are mine and I love you. We're going to respond to this word. I wonder how God has been speaking to you. What is he saying to you? Is he challenging you to get down from the judgment seat and to move towards that place of marveling and of trust? We might not understand everything, but God's mercy is there for us to receive. Whether Jew or Gentile, outsider, the remnant, God's mercy is there for us this morning. How is he calling you to receive it? Let me pray for us before we sing. God, your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts higher than our thoughts. But yet we marvel that you have chosen to show your mercy to undeserving people like us. And Lord, we worship you. We know our undeserving thoughts and our actions. And we thank you that today we come and can receive from you the fountain of mercy as we come to this cross of Jesus. You have been so good to us. And we worship you. Amen.